This morning, I'm going to do something that I don't do very often, which is to share something that was not in my original plan for, uh, for today. I prefer that our God of order uh, speak through the preparation that I'd done all week long, but sometimes uh, God begins to stir in me something different. And so today, I'm going to share with you from God's Word, but not exactly in the place that we had printed in the bulletin. So uh, you'll find it there, but I want you to hear from actually several different places from God's Word. The first is in 1 Corinthians 14, where we had started from, and then we're going to look at several places. So if you have your uh, Bibles, make sure you get them opened or turned on and, uh, and ready to go, because we're going to move through, well, throughout several places in God's Word today. 1 Corinthians 14.33. God is not a God of disorder but of peace. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. Evening came, and then morning, the first day. And then, back to the New Testament, Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. When it was noon... Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a reed, and offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, this man really was God's son. And then one more reading in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1. Verses 11 to 14. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in Him. And then one more time in 1 Corinthians 14, 33. 
God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Let's pray. Would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, I hope to help you see why I had us listen to those words from God's words as we go uh, throughout the morning. But uh, before we dive into all of that, uh, let me just say a quick thank you for the uh, opportunity to go and serve across the ocean with our partner church in Spain last week. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we've had a long-term relationship with the church uh, over there to help plant churches in an area of the world that uh, does not have uh, much of a gospel or evangelical presence. And so uh, it was a time for me to go and meet with their leaders and to do some equipping and sharing and also to get to appreciate some of the beauty of God's world. Uh, if you've never seen the sunrise over the Mediterranean Ocean it is just something special. In fact, I, uh, I brought a picture uh, from, uh, from my, my trip over there. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful uh, place to, uh, to reflect on, well, what we've, we've just read. Uh, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 14 that God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. He's not a God of disorder, but of peace. And he has written order into our lives. I experienced a little bit of that this week as I came back from Spain. I believe it's six time zones that I crossed, and I'm not much of a traveler. That's just not really my, uh, my experience or my thing, and so it's not familiar for me to deal with jet lag. You've, maybe you've experienced some of that. I don't like it. It's just not much fun at all. Uh, I felt tired all week long, and uh, by 9 o'clock at night, even if I'd had naps during the day, I was done and was in bed with my kids uh, ready to, uh, to sleep, uh, which they kind of thought was fun, but uh, I'm sure my wife didn't appreciate. So I started doing some reading about midweek to try to figure out how is it that, that someone is, can get over jet lag, because it just seemed to be lingering for me. And I uh, read some articles, and I found out that there is, uh, there is one way that has been shown to help uh, people to uh, recover from jet lag quickly. You know what it is? Exposure to sunlight. Now, if you'll remember back this past week, <laughs> you might appreciate why it was so hard for me to uh, recover from my jet lag. I didn't see the sun until yesterday, but uh, I'm feeling much better now, and I'm glad. God has built into our bodies a natural rhythm, an order that uh, we are supposed to see light and darkness, and this helps us to, uh, to function in this world. God has, has stamped his order on our very bodies. In fact, he stamped it onto all of creation. And that's what we were uh, reading about there as we, we looked back at Genesis chapter 1. God, in his wisdom, established a, a rhythm to life. There was, uh, there was light that would shine into the darkness. His light would push back the darkness and chaos, and he would establish order from the very beginning. 
If you continue to read through the story of God's word, you, you see this kind of pattern emerging out of God's plan. His plan is to take that which is chaotic and to create order. Even in the Garden of Eden, you see this pattern playing out. If you flip the page over to Genesis chapter 2, if you're back there in your Bibles, you see him doing this even with the first man, Adam. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it, it says this, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work and to watch over it. You see, the picture that we see emerging, even from the very beginning of God's creation, was not of Adam and Eve sitting up, uh, drinking uh, their, their drinks with little umbrellas in them and their feet kicked back and just enjoying themselves. No, what, what God established for Adam was a job to do. He placed them in this garden. He said, okay, Adam, go work it. And the word for work there will later on in the Old Testament be used to describe the kind of work that farmers will do to, uh, to till up a soil and to plant and to tend uh, those plants so that it might flourish. You see, what God was establishing was that in the garden there would be plants and there would be substance and stuff, but it would be Adam's responsibility to work it, to tend it, to bring order into this new world that God had established, to bring beauty and flourishing out of the stuff that God had created. You see, God had assigned this person, this man Adam, a job to do, to take this world that God had established and created order and to make more order, more beauty, more flourishing out of his own work of his hands. This was the plan of God in the world. And it is the plan of God throughout God's word to take a person and from that person to grow a people and out of that people to cause flourishing to extend throughout his created world. But if you've been around, you know that that's not exactly the, the storyline, right? You remember that Adam didn't accomplish his objective. He didn't watch out for the garden, which meant to guard it. And he and Eve would fall prey to an enemy. The enemy who would say, did God really say that you can't eat from that fruit? The one thing that God had put off limits, the one command that God had given him to obey... Adam failed to obey, and his disobedience would bring destruction and decay to the rest of the world. The curse that God would, would lay upon the, the earth would be that it would uh, produce thorns, that, his, that Adam's work would be futile, that Eve's life would be marked by pain, and that, that suddenly this world created in order with Adam as a steward to bring about more order instead would be a world that would break down, that disorder would constantly come against it. But did God's plan fail? The answer is no. From this section over here, the answer is no. Let me try again. The answer to this section is no. So did God's plan fail? No. Okay, so these people get it, all right? Did God's plan fail? No. 
No, it didn't fail. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here and there would be no Bible. No, as we continue to turn the pages of God's Word, we see that God did not abandon His plan. He continued to raise up a person. And from that person, His intention to was raise a people. And from that people to cause flourishing to come. And so we look at the first person, Noah. God sees a righteous man, and he raises up Noah. But did Noah succeed? No. We'll see even Noah, this righteous man, falling prey to drunkenness and to laziness, and and he won't fulfill God's plan. And so God raises up another man, Abraham. Abraham would be the father of this great nation, but did Abraham, he he would go from being a person to a people, but would he finish the plan of God? No, he wouldn't. Abraham would fall into deceit, and even this great man would be marked by disorder in his life instead of order. And so we continue on to Moses, uh, to Saul, to David. All of these stories that we see in the Old Testament are stories, expressions of God raising up a person who would then be responsible to build a people. And then that people would be responsible to cause flourishing to extend across the world. And yet time and time again, the plan breaks down. We see the person God raised up not fulfilling all that they were called to do. And we see the people that God raised up failing to live in community with God and with one another. And so instead of creating flourishing for everyone around them, they create enmity and hostility and anger towards one another and separation from those around them. Instead of light coming out of these people, darkness comes into them. Until God raises up another man, the man Jesus Christ. The plan of God is to raise up a person who will build a people, and then those people will cause flourishing to extend across the world. And though Adam failed, and Noah would fail, and Abraham would fail, and Moses would fail, and David would fail, Jesus would not fail. Jesus would face that same temptation of Adam. He would wrestle with the devil. And yet instead of failing to watch and to guard over, Jesus would resist the devil and cause him to flee. And Jesus would remain faithful to God's plan even to the point of death on the cross. And as we look at the life of Jesus, we see Jesus pushing back against this darkness, this disorder in the world. One of my favorite little sequences in the New Testament is in Mark chapter 4 and 5. We're not going to read it all, but I want you to mark it in your Bibles because I want you to go back this afternoon and read this section of Scripture. And read it with the lens of seeing Jesus, this person raised up by God to push back darkness and establish order. The first little story that the Gospel of Mark tells is about Jesus 
out in the ocean with his disciples. The storm comes up and rages, and his disciples are afraid that they're going to drown, and they say, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to die? And what does Jesus do? He stands up and he says to the storm, be still. He quiets the chaos. And instead of disaster coming upon that little group of people and huddled in that boat that day, they experience Jesus' power. But Mark's not done. The story continues quickly. And now you see Jesus in another sequence of confronted with the man possessed by all kinds of evil spirits, demons, and they're destroying him, and he's causing havoc in his community. And Jesus confronts this guy, and he says to these demons, get out of him. And they go. Jesus demonstrates that his power isn't just over disaster, over wind and over waves. He demonstrates his power is even over demons, and he sends them fleeing. They will not win against him. And so Jesus establishes a new order. And he sends this man recently freed from this assault of the enemy to go and become a voice for the truth and the grace of Jesus in his community. Jesus demonstrates his power over disaster, but then over demons. But he's not done yet. The story continues, and Jesus moves into a town, and, and, and a woman who has been afflicted with, with suffering and disease for her whole life reaches out to him and touches Jesus' cloak, and instantly she's healed. Jesus' power doesn't extend just to disaster and to demons. His power extends even over disease, and he pushes back that darkness but he's not done yet because the Gospel of Mark sandwiches that story amidst a final one, demonstrating Jesus' power. It's the story of a little girl whose father comes to Jesus in distress and says, Jesus, come. If you don't come, my daughter's going to die. And Jesus is going along the way when he has the sequence where he heals this woman. And in the midst of all of this confusion about uh, who touched me and uh, who was healed and, and Jesus uh, speaking encouragement over this woman who is hurt, the messengers come and they say to the man, don't bother him anymore. She's gone. There's nothing more that he can do. But do you know what Jesus says? He says, not yet. You haven't seen the full extent of my power. And Jesus goes to that home, and he says to that little girl, little girl, get up. And he raises her from the dead. This Jesus whom God raised up, who would be faithful to accomplish God's plan, would have God's power over over disaster, he would have God's power over demons, he would have God's power over disease, and he would even have God's power over death itself. Jesus, the light shining in the darkness, pushes back the disorder and chaos and says, no, God is not a God of disorder. 
but a God of peace. But do you remember what God's plan is? It's not merely to raise up a person who would then bring order to God's world. The plan throughout all of the scriptures is for God to raise up a person who would then raise up a people. And from those people to extend flourishing throughout the world. And so the power of Jesus is not done merely in demonstrating that he has power over disaster and demons and disease and death. Jesus' power is most on display when he raises up a people. And so as we continue to look into God's word, we see evidence of this kind of people. In Matthew chapter 25, we hear Jesus saying about his people that they would be those who care for the least of these, the ones who are poor and in prison and sick, those who have experienced disaster, the people of Jesus will move into that disaster and bring hope and healing. They bring order with them as representatives of Jesus. As we continue to look in God's word, we see in Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul writes to a church and he says, look, put on the, the full armor of God so that you can resist the attacks of the devil. The power of Jesus is demonstrated in a people of Jesus who know how to be equipped and to stand in the face of the devil's attacks and not to run and hide, nor to be overcome or to give up in despair, but rather to be fitted with that shield of faith, that helmet of salvation, that breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, and their feet solidly rooted in the gospel of peace. Why? Because our God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. And he sent his son Jesus, not just to demonstrate his power in him, but to demonstrate his power through us, his people. We would be his mechanism to push back disaster in the lives of those who are hurting and hungry. We would be his mechanism to push back demons in the face of the onslaught of the enemy in our lives and the lives of those we love. We would be his mechanism through our prayers to lift up those who are sick. And as James chapter 5, verse 16 says, that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, brings about healing. And perhaps most importantly, we as the people of Jesus, those people raised up by his power, we are commissioned to be a people of hope, even in the face of death. And so we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 these important words. 
We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. In verse 19, therefore, encourage one another with these words. The people of Jesus raised up to push back against disorder and darkness are empowered with that same power of Jesus to push back against disaster, to push back against demons, to push back against disease, and to push back even against death itself and say, death, you have no power over us because our Savior Jesus defeated death. And so we live in that hope. But it's not just enough that God would raise up a person who would then raise up a people. You remember the plan of God to raise up a person who would raise up a people who would then cause flourishing to extend across the world. We are not the end of God's plan. We are merely part of his plan. In 1900, some of you will know this story. In 1900, Galveston, the place where my family is from, was just about leveled by a hurricane that came across the island. The, the weather people didn't know what was coming. They didn't read the signs right, so there was very little warning. And this massive storm would, would slam into the island. The initial reports, the, the, the final reports that we have were that there were at least 6,000 people who, who died when that storm uh, rushed across the island. There are some estimates that it was as many as 12,000. Of the 38,000 residents on the island at the time, 30,000 of them were homeless after the storm. There, there's, it's said that there wasn't a single building not damaged uh, by the wind and the waves that, that wiped out the place. Galveston, which had been a flourishing place of, of economy and on the Texas coast, was, uh, was kind of the jewel of the port cities, would suddenly become a wasteland. Nothing there. But you know what the people of Galveston did? They didn't leave. Like normal sane people might do after a storm like that, they would, uh, would run away. But these people didn't do that. You know what they did? They decided to stay. And not just stay, they built a wall. And not just any wall. They built a wall that was 17 feet high and 16 feet thick. Initially, it would be three and a half miles long. Now it's over 10 miles long. These crazy islanders would not give up after the storm came and wiped out their town. You know what they did instead? They built a wall. And you know what's happened behind that wall? Well, if you've been down there to visit, you know. There is a whole 
city flourishing there. Even after repeated storms, the island continues to, uh, to be not just habitable, but to be a desirable place for people to live and to work, and industry thrives there. You know what's happened there? Flourishing. Why? Because people decided to build a wall, to say, we're not going to run away when the storm comes, but we're going to build a wall and live here. Do you know what we are as the people of God in this world of darkness and disorder? Do you know what we are? We're the wall. You are the wall. If you have been rescued from darkness into light by the power of Jesus, you've become the wall. And you are God's plan to push back the darkness and disorder in this world. We, together, are God's plan to bring hope even in the face of death in this world, which is so dark and so desperate and so lonely. We're the wall. And so we are to stand up against that darkness and say, you can't come here. You don't have a place here. The power of Jesus is inhabiting me and my friends. And so darkness, you don't get to win. And by the power of God's Spirit at work in us, we win. That's why the Scripture says that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. But you know what happens to a wall? From time to time, storms come. And you know what those storms do to the wall? They smash against it. And the storms attempt to tear it down. And do you know what we, people of God, must be prepared for? Storms. And we shouldn't be surprised when from time to time, they rock into our world. Because it didn't just happen to Adam, to Noah, and to Moses, and to David. Do you know who else faced storms? Jesus Christ, our Savior. He faced the greatest storm of all when he would stretch out his arms on the cross and take the full burden of our sin and shame upon himself. He would say to the storm, come, pour it on me so that those behind me could be saved. And today, if you're feeling the weight of that storm, if you're feeling the encroachment of death, if you're feeling the burden of disease, if you're feeling the attacks of the demons, if you're worried about the effects of disaster, then today you know where you need to run? To Jesus Christ. He is your wall so that you might also be a wall for your family, for your neighbors, for your co-workers, for this city, for this state, for this nation and this world. We are called to be 
the wall. So will you stand? And will you stand together? God has called our church here at this point in time to this place and this, uh, this particular situation of, of, a, of, a, of a culture and a nation that's in all kinds of turmoil. God's called us here for his purposes and his plan. And we know what that plan is. That we, by the power of Jesus, would push back darkness and hold up light. And so I want to invite you. I really want to say call you, but I'll say invite you for now. I want to invite you to recommit yourself to be the wall together as a, as a people, as a church. I, I want to invite you to say, who is it in my life that I need to be the wall on their behalf? Who do I need to stand in the face of darkness so that they don't have to stand alone? One of the ways that I want to challenge you to think about doing this is in this season, as we walk through changing our worship schedules, would you think about who it is that you need to pray for and to invite to be a part of this family of faith? Who do you need to invite to come out of the storm and into a place where there are other folks who will stand with them and say, you're not alone? In the face of the darkness and disorder, you're not alone? Who is it that God has uniquely put in your life that you need to be a wall for? Inside your worship folder today, there's a little card. And you'll see on there, there's a perforated section. What I want to challenge you to do is to today take it home and to pray and say, Father, who do I need to be the wall for? Ask him to show you five people who are in your sphere of influence that, that you need to take a stand on their behalf. And then secondly, if they are here in this community and not attending Columbus Avenue, I want to challenge you to not just pray for them and not just be a wall for them, but to invite them in to this community. Invite them to come with you to experience the power of Jesus amongst the people of Jesus. Next week, we're going to have an opportunity to publicly say, I'll, I'll be the wall. I'll be the wall for some folks. And I'm not going to ask you to do it this week. I want you to pray and to think and to consider because I want you to take it seriously if you do. Life and death is at stake in the call of God to be the people of God. The flourishing of those around us is at stake as we decide to say, Jesus I'm going to stand behind you and I'm going to stand in front of whomever you call me to so that I can be a part of God's plan to push back the darkness and to see his light dawn.
So people of God, will you be that wall? Will you stand behind Jesus and in front of this city in this world? Let's pray. This is not our plan. We would not have done it this way. No human being would, would invent a plan that means investing us with this kind of responsibility, with this kind of dignity. We didn't make this up. And so, Father, we recognize that if this is your plan, then we need your wisdom to accomplish it. We need your power to be able to fulfill it. We know many have fallen before us. Many have failed. But we also know that what you prove for us in Jesus is that his grace really is enough. And so today we confess, as a people, we confess, Father, we have not done this in the ways that we should. Instead of guarding and protecting We've been like Adam, and we've been hiding and indulging. So would you cause the grace of Jesus to, to cover us and to cleanse us? Would you focus our minds and our hearts on this call that you have placed on our lives? And would you empower us to live as your people here? We can't accomplish this on our own. So, Spirit of God, would you do what only you can do in us? Build your church here. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.